0: canal water your throat the welcome zombies full fedded flavor presents tales from new battery
1: Desire is the making or unmaking of man, and laughing last is not essentially a sigh of joy.
2: Nah, said Jack Ellis reflectively. It ain't a white man's country.
0: I made no reply.
2: None was necessary. The only people on the beach, besides we two, were moors, riffs, and a brace of scorpions who had made themselves unwelcome in Gibraltar. There's something I like,' Alice continued, waving his cigarette at a large steam yacht anchored a mile out. "'I'd like to be chief in air, instead of opening the throttles in these blasted Portuguese tramps, and I've not done that for a year. Lord knows I'd sell my soul for a fistful of good, oily waste, and the smell of an engine room.' "'I know what you mean,' I said. "'But I'm not keen on engine rooms. "'I like to see a real woman, "'the kind that wears rustling clothes "'and little bits of slippers.
0: "'I like
2: barmaids myself,' said Alice vaguely. (laughs) "'Barmaids? "'Lord!' "'Yes, barmaids. "'What's wrong with a nice, well-built barmaid? "'I knew one once. "'Black hair, blue eyes. "'Used to work in a pub near the Victoria Docks. "'She was a little bit of all right.' And I liked her fine. Gave her a gold ring I bought in a pawn shop. Yeah, but one day I came in unexpectedly from a voyage. Caught a kiss in a third engineer, of the Kriegerland. It took four blokes to pull me off that third engineer. I broke most of the furniture in their place before they got me out in the street. I wanted to go back too. The girl was yelling for the police. So I went away quiet and peaceful like. She kept my ring too. Clear six shilling loss. Women have cost me a lot of money one time and another. With your share of the coin we made back in that little Cairo deal, you could go back and find another barmaid. Man, dear, I will not. I have a matter of two hundred pounds. That's too much for a barmaid. An aunt of mine lives in America, a nice little village called Huntington. She made the captain of a way there. I'll just go and visit her and look around for a wife. Oh, black hair and blue eyes preferred. Though I would like longed, if she had a little money. I thought of a certain dark-haired girl who lived out near Kings Highway, and wondered if she still went down to Brighton and Manhattan. Probably not. Girls are so addicted to marrying. I was still musing on my lost love when Alice roused me. Ah, the sun's almost down, he said, and I'm hungry. Abrams couscous will balance me nicely. Come along. "'We walked up the beach, under the grim old casbah, and entered the town. "'In the narrow street where stood Ibram's house, a Frenchman nearly ran into us. He settled past with a slight bow and went on hurriedly. "'But I didn't like his face. It reminded me of a rat.' "'Aye, he'll be the owner of the steam yacht,' said Alice. "'And I'd like to know what's keeping him here at Daraldana. "'This town ain't exactly a summer resort.' In the guest-room of Ibram's house, we found the Englishman sitting cross-legged before the low table, bearing a dish of couscous, and flanked by a fat teapot with sprigs of mint sprouting from its top. "'Late as usual,' said the Englishman. Two more minutes and I've begun. Can on package. When the meal was over, and we'd had washed our hands in the brass bowl brought in by Ibram's sus-country slave, we settled ourselves comfortably on the divan and smoked, "'Alice and I are orange cigarettes, "'and the Englishman a pipe of good green keef. "'Have you seen the owner of the steam yacht?' "'inquired the Englishman suddenly, laying aside his pipe. "'We nodded. He's a proper rotter,' continued the Englishman. "'Came up on me in the soup this morning. "'Introduced himself. "'By his card, he's the Count of Biru. "'But by his desires, he's a beast. "'Got into a conversation he did. "'Said he understood I was a man of adventure.' Would I assist him in a small matter? I asked what the matter was, and he said coolly enough that it was to carry off Anisha, the daughter of Abdullah the Sharif.
0: Anisha, Anisha?
2: Alice and I exclaimed. Right, said the Englishman calmly. But don't shout. You'll disturb Ibram, who's busy sleeping. Why, she's the most beautiful girl in Dar al I said slowly. "'Did you knock him down?' asked Alice. "'Knock him down? Certainly not. "'It would have been like killing the goose that laid the golden neck. "'Listen to me, and I'll explain how we can make a bit of money out of him.' we selling Anisha,' growled Alice. "'Not me. Gotten too many favours from a dad, who's a gentleman, "'even if he is a bit sunburned.' "'We shan't sell Anisha,' exclaimed the Englishman. "'We'll play with this Frenchman. Set him up.' As a British citizen, it's my right and bounded duty to level toll on the French. And with your help, I'll do it. Leave that matter to me. I'll arrange it. Frenchman's already offered me a hundred pounds for the job. But I'll put him off. He'll come again, no fear, and offer more. When he makes it three hundred, I'll close with him. Then we three will divide the loot. You ain't on it. How you do it without handing over the girl, I inquired. Easy enough, answered the Englishman. We'll substitute something else, you know. That pet gorilla, the Boches, never did love the bridge. We'll give him that. Man, dear," said Alice with fine contempt, "doesn't want a monkey. He'd laugh in your face." Of course, of course," returned the Englishman soothingly. "But he won't know it's a monkey. Now then, we'll wrap up Mister Gorilla in six or seven hucks and a dish hole halberd two, and his own mother won't know him, much less a Frenchman. Oh, but the smell of him! "'Objected Alice. "'He fair reeks, and that's a fact.' "'Perfume,' said the Englishman. "'Can I too sprinkle on, and he will smell like paradise.' "'That's all right,' said I. "'But that Frenchman isn't going to buy up any pig in a poke "'without first getting a square look at the pig.' Eh hey, well, no fear,' said the Englishman cheerily. "'I've thought it all out, and according to my plans, "'he'll be in such hurry that he'll just grab his package "'and make off in time. "'We'll see the Boche in the morning.' What price guerrillas, eh? Next morning, Alice went down to the beach to keep tabs on the Frenchman, and the Englishman and I went up to the Bosha's house. The sleepy sentries at the gate and the outer wall passed us in without demur, and we made our way through the gardens. At the great door of the house, the macadam stood, hands on hips. When he saw us, he made obeyance, for the Englishman was known to be a friend of the faithful and a giver of money besides. Behold... I am a poor man and thy friend, master," said the Macadam's greeting to the Englishman. To me he said, "Sidi, peace be with thee." And to thee, peace," I replied. And then the Englishman asked for the basha. The illustrious one is among his ladies," said the Macadam. And I understand," interrupted the Englishman, slipping a coin into his hand. But I have. To say which will make his heart rejoice, it will seem to rejoice mine also," said the Makadam. "Lord, I will see," and he departed, biting the piece of silver, for he was a careful man. Soon the Makadam came hurrying back. "Comes now the illustrious one into the inner court," said he, "where he will receive thee." We followed the makadam into the inner court and found the basha seated on a divan with keef pipes on a small table in front of him. We had barely made our salutations when in came a slave bearing the inevitable teapot with sprigs of mint and little cups on a brass tray from Fez. Following the Moorish custom, we didn't mention the purpose of our visit, but passed stately compliments to the basha, whose dull eyes showed that he had been smoking more keef than was good for him. My friends... "'said the Basha, when the Englishman was about to open negotiations. "'You have seen my dancers. I bought three weeks ago. "'Caucasians are they, and by no matter, you shall judge for yourselves.' "'We did judge and praised the Basha's taste. "'For an unrefined illiterate moor, he had an uncommonly good eye for dancing girls. "'At any other time, we would have enjoyed watching them, "'but the acquisition of the gorilla was more important.' and I was glad when the Basha sent his private ballet back to the harem. "'Ah, now, my friends,' said the Basha when we were alone, "'in what way can my poor self be of service?' The Englishman told him, and then I witnessed the edifying spectacle of a fat Basha and a lean Englishman haggling over the price of one medium-sized gorilla, ferocious and very smelly. As usual, the East conquered the West— It is only in war that the West is victorious. The Englishman offered seven pounds for the brute, and got him for twelve. And, said the Basha, when the bargain had been concluded, you must take him from the cage yourself. He has the anger in him always, and would as quickly take him out, as I would lose a mad camel in the souk. The Basha did not inquire into our reasons for purchasing his gorilla, which was well, for a Moorish official is always anxious to have a finger in every pie. That afternoon, the Frenchman came ashore to confer with the Englishman. Alice and I were present at the meeting. It was a lively session. The Frenchman almost wept when we told him our price was three hundred pounds. Forty pounds down, and the remainder on delivery. The Frenchman wrung his hands and protested, but the Englishman explained that if we were caught kidnapping Anisha, we would certainly be killed and in a most unlovely fashion. Finally, the Count agreed to our terms, and we promised to hand over the girl next evening at midnight. He said his doctor would give us the knockout drops, or their equivalent, if we should come out to the yacht with him. I shan't forget that visit to the steam yacht. We stayed for dinner, and there were unlimited king's pegs. Alice finished twelve before they affected him. Then he turned rusty. He nearly knocked the deal on the head by calling the Count a Johnny Cropod, He also aired his views on the French and their habits in choice engine-room English. Then he wanted to fight me, and he hit the Englishman instead. We managed to get him overside and into the boat at last. Next morning, when Alice awoke, he had only the pleasantest recollections of the previous evening. (laughs) It's sometimes a blessing to have no nerves. "'Now then,' said the Englishman after breakfast. "'I'm going to tell all about it. We'll need his help.' "'Will he understand?' I was dubious. Understand? Why, old chap, Amor has a sense of humor. A bit perverted, perhaps. But a thing like this would tickle the Moor's fancy in a way that would surprise you. Ibram's ancestors were pirates. Sally, you know. I called Ibram, and he came in. He removed his yellow slippers and sat upon the divan, as fine-looking a Moor as one could wish to see. Ibram listened intently to the tale. When the Englishman had finished, the Moor placed both hands on his knees, pointed his beard at the ceiling, and laughed gustily. Then he wiped his eyes and spoke. C. D., as thou seest, this dog of a Frenchman, may other dogs dance upon his grave, should without doubts have his tongue torn out and his eyes pierced with hot skewers for daring to look upon a niche daughter of a Sharif. Our women go veiled, as thou knowst. When they walk abroad, to see her face, he must have spied privately upon her in her father's garden. If Abdallah the Sharif knew this, he would neither wash hands nor sleep till he had found a Frenchman's heart with a knife. Then trouble would arise, for worship in other Frenchmen, evil, ill-conditioned rogues, come, and true believers would suffer. But this way there can be no trouble but much laughter and instead. The boat of the Frenchmen will be on the beach west of the Kaspar at midnight. Good. I, Ibram Alkaid, will take my two brothers, true men and no chatterers, and make a powder play at the appointed time. This will the matter be settled. At eight o'clock that evening, the three of us went up to the Basha's house. The Englishman had partly explained matters to the Makaram and that worthy man met us at the outer gate with many obeyances and a large bundle of clothes. He led us through the silent gardens to the cage of the gorilla. The ugly brute, very wide awake, squatted on his haunches and eyed us malevolently, chewing on a stick the while. I remember how his eyes glittered in the lantern light. Behold, master, said Nemakodem, the monkey has had not to drink since the morning, as thou didst order. "'Now, Stone Webble,' answered the Englishman. "'We will now relieve his test.' A slave brought a jug of water, "'and the Englishman poured into it a sweet-smelling liquid "'given him by the yacht's doctor. "'It was not knockout drops, "'but the yacht's doctor said it was just as good "'and would keep a girl unconscious for ten hours. "'We thought it would certainly put a gorilla to sleep for five. "'When the mixture had been well stirred, "'the makatum attracted the gorilla's attention elsewhere. "'Then the Englishman opened the cage door "'and slipped the jug inside.' Once the gorilla perceived the jug, lifted it with his hairy hands and gulped down every drop. The drug took hold of the monkey immediately. The brute dropped the drug, gripped the bars of his cage, chattered a bit, then crumpled into a heap on the floor. The Englishman flung the cage door open, seized the gorilla by his feet, and pulled him out. Then we set to work upon him. While the macadam held the lantern, he also told us how to put on the clothes. It took us three-quarters of an hour to rub in the perfume and attire that gorilla properly. Finally, the job was finished, and we stood back and surveyed the result of our efforts. The odor of the perfume was rather overpowering, and the gorilla made a very bulky bundle. He had on six hikes and two heavy dejalabs. He did not in the least resemble a young lady. Still, in the dark, and if the Frenchman were properly hurried, he could pass as one. I looked up and caught the macadam's eye. The Moor had not been told for whom the monkey was intended, but his humorous soul sensed a joke. Sidi, said the makadam Is it a gist? It is, I answered. Then I will provide donkey, said the makadam, and he did. Our progress down the hill from the Basha's house was not uneventful. Alice and I held the gorilla on the donkey, while the Englishman urged the little animal on by twisting its tail, which is the proper method of steering a donkey in Morocco. Halfway down, the donkey tripped over a sleeping dog. We four fell in a heap, and the Englishman roared with laughter until the dog bit him. Then he tried to kill the dog. "'I think,' said the Englishman, when the dog had departed, "'we'd best not go through town. We don't want to arouse too much comment.' We skirted the town, and on level ground we trotted briskly. The donkey grew wary and tried to lie down several times, once in somebody's melon patch. Luckily for us, we got him up and away without attracting the attention of the owner. We were all sweating freely when we reached the clump of palms underneath the caspaw. We dismounted the gorilla and sat down. Alice cursed all monkeys and rubbed his arms. Mine, too, ached, Not a little. Three shadows detached themselves from beneath the palms and joined us. They were Ibram al-Qaeda and his two brothers, true men and no chatterers. The Englishman scratched a match inside his helmet and looked at his watch. The hands marked twenty minutes to twelve. Time to drink, said the Englishman. We bindled a gorilla on the donkey and proceeded slowly along the beach, taking care to keep well away from the water. There was no point in letting the Frenchman see us too soon we halted some four hundred yards from the spot where we were to meet him, and stared along the shoreline. "'That'll be him,' said Alice. "'I can make out his boat plan.' "'Right,' said the Englishman. "'Ibram, do thou wait in peace till we're fifty paces distant from the boat. Then pursue swiftly, shouting and firing!' Ibram and his brothers nodded, their white teeth gleaming in the darkness. The Englishman twisted the donkey's tail, and we started to run down the beach to the boat." Soon, shots and yells rang out behind us. The Frenchman's voice called to us in a frightened falsetto. We ran and the donkey galloped.
0: Vita, Vita! shrieked the captain
2: as he pulled up at the boat's bow. Where's the money? demanded the Englishman, shooing back two sailors who were attempting to lay hands on the gorilla. Easy! I- 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 stuttered the Frenchman, holding out two plump bags that clinked alluringly. Right said the Englishman, taking the bags. Here's your fair lady. Quick now, our are coming. Never mind us. Ibram and his brothers were doing their part of the performance nobly. Two sailors seized the gorilla, placed him carefully in the boat. The Count pillowed the veiled and hooded head in his lap, and shoved off just as the three moors ran up. The crew bent to their oars, and the boat advanced seaward. Then, the three of us collapsed on the sand and stifled our laughter with our coat sleeves, while the Moors called Allah to witness the discomfiture of the Frenchman. Suddenly, a wild scream from the boat checked our mirth. "'Ah, huh. Frenchman must have opened his bundle,' said the Englishman. "'Eh, doesn't matter, though. We got the money, and he'll not complain. Funny, it? Scream after scream and volleys of profane French came from the boat. "'It sounds to me,' observed Alice." As if Master Gorilla had waked up. I thought I felt him move a little when say this took him. <laughs> that dope doesn't strong enough. A fair-sized riot seemed to be going on in the boat. Then we heard a heavy splash, followed by sounds as if a paddle-wheel steamer coming shoreward rapidly. A minute or two later and the gorilla, puffing strongly, scrambled ashore. Of his many clothes there remained but one dejol hung about his neck. It did not impede his movements, however for he skipped past us and disappeared up the beach. We never saw him again. The boat rode on out to the yacht, and what the Frenchman thought, well, we never knew. But we will never forget him, for when the bags were opened, we discovered the contents to be several pounds of the best iron washers, and absolutely nothing else.
3: A voyage which I made to the East Indies with Captain Hamilton, I took a favorite pointer along with me. He was, to use a common phrase, worth his weight in gold, for he never deceived me. One day, when we were by the best observations we could make at least three hundred leagues from land, my dog suddenly pointed. I observed him for nearly an hour with astonishment, and mentioned the circumstance to the captain and every other officer on board, asserting that we must surely be near land for my dog smelt game. This occasioned a general laugh. However, that did not alter in the least the good opinion I had of my dog. After much conversation pro and con, I boldly told the captain I placed more confidence in Trey's nose than I did in the eyes of every seaman on board, and therefore, proposed laying the sum I had agreed to pay for my passage viz. one hundred guineas—that we should find game within half an hour. The captain, a good hearty fellow, laughed again, desired Mr. Crawford the surgeon who was prepared to feel my pulse. He did so, and reported me in perfect health. The following dialogue between them took place. I overheard it, though spoken low, and at some distance. The Captain. His brain turned. I cannot with honor accept this wager. The Surgeon. I am of a different opinion. He is quite sane and depends more on the scent of his dog than he will on the judgment of all the officers on board. He will certainly lose and he richly merits it. The Captain again. Such a wager cannot be fair on my side. However, I'll take him up if I return his money afterward. During the aforementioned conversation, Trey continued in the same situation and confirmed me still more in my former opinion. I proposed the wager a second time, and it was then steadily accepted. Done and done were scarcely said on both sides when some sailors who were fishing in the longboat, which was made fast to the stern of the ship, harpooned an exceedingly large shark which they then brought on board and began to cut up for the purpose of barreling the oil, when, behold, they found no less than six brace of live partridges in this animal's stomach. No! They had been so long in the situation that one of the hens was sitting upon four eggs, and a fifth was hatching when the shark was opened. This young bird we brought up by placing it on a litter of kittens which were born into the world only moments before. The old cat was as fond of it as any of her own four-legged progeny and made herself very unhappy when it flew out of her reach till it returned again. As to the other partridges, there were four hens amongst them, one or more were during the voyage, constantly sitting and consequently We had plenty of game at the captain's table, and in gratitude to Paul Trey for being a means of winning 100 guineas, I ordered him the bones daily, and sometimes the entire bird
1: Once upon a time, said the sailor, the devil and Davy Jones came to Cardiff, to a place called Tiger Bay. They put up at Tony Adams, not far from Pier Head, at the corner of Sunday Lane. And all the time they stayed there, they used to be going to the rum shop, where they sat at a table, smoking their cigars, and dicing each other for different persons' souls. Now you must know that the devil gets landsmen, and Davy Jones gets sailor folk, and they get tired of having always the same, so then they dice each other for some of another sort. One time, they were in a place in Mary Street, having some burnt brandy and playing red and black for the people passing, and while they were looking out in the street and turning the cards, they saw all the people in the pavement breaking their necks to get into the gutter, and they saw all the shop people running out, and no-towing, and all the carts pulling up, and all the police saluting. Oh, here comes a big knob, said Davy Jones. Yes, said the devil. It's the bishop that's stopping with the mayor. Red or black, said Davy Jones, picking up a card. I don't play for bishops, said the devil. I respect the cloth, he said. Come on, man, said Davy Jones. I'd give an admiral to have a bishop. Come on, now, make your game, red or black. Well, I see red, said the devil. It's the ace of clubs, said Davy Jones. I win, and it's the first bishop I've ever had in my life. The devil was mighty angry at that, at losing a bishop. I'll not play any more, he said. I'm off home. Some people gets two cards for me. There was some queer shuffling when that pack was cut. That's my belief. Aw, stay and be friends, man, said Davy Jones. Look at what's coming down the street. I'll give you that for nothing. Now, coming down the street, there was a reefer, one of those apprentice fellows, and he was brass-bound fit to play music. He stood about six feet, and there were bright brass buttons down his jacket, and on his collar and on his sleeves. His cap had a big gold badge with a house flag in seven different colours in the middle of it, and a gold chain cable of a chainstay twisted round it. He was wearing his cap on three hairs, and he walked on both the pavement and all the road. His trousers were cut like wind sails round the ankles. He had a fathom of red silk tie rolling out over his chest. He'd a cigarette in a twisted clay holder a foot and a half long. He was chewing tobacco over his shoulders as he walked. He'd a bottle of rum hot in one hand, a bag of jam tarts in the other, and his pockets were full of love letters from every port between Rio and Calao, round by the east. You mean to say you'll give me that, said the devil. I will, said Davy Jones, and a beauty he is. i never seen a finer. He is indeed a beauty, said the devil. I take back what I said about the cards. I'm sorry I spoke crusty. What's the matter with some more bunt brandy? "Bunt brandy be it, said Davy Jones. So they rang the bell and ordered a new jug and clean glasses. Now the devil was so proud of what Davy had given him, he couldn't keep away from him. used to hang about the East Butte docks under the red brick clock tower, looking at the bark the young man worked aboard. Bill Harker his name was. He was on a west coast bark, the Coronel, loading fuel for Hilo. So at last, when the Coronel was sailing, the devil shipped himself aboard her as one of the crowd in the forecastle and away they went down the channel. At first, he was very happy, for Bill Harker was in the same watch, and the two would yarn together, and though he was wise when he shipped, Bill Harker taught him a lot. There was a lot of things Bill Harker knew about, but when they were off the river plate, they got caught in a pampero, and it blew very hard, and a big green sea began to run. The coronel was a wet ship, and for three days you could stand upon her poop and look forward and see nothing but a smother of foam from the break of the poop to the jib boom. The crew had to roost in the poop, the forecastle was flooded out, and while they were like this, the flying jib worked loose. The jib will be gone in half a tick, said the mate. Out there, one of you, and make it fast before it blows away. But the boom was dipping under every minute and the waist was four feet deep and green water came aboard all along her length so none of the crowd would go forward then Bill Harker shambled out and away he went forward with the green sea smashing over him and he lay out along the jib boom and made the sail fast and jolly nearly drowned he was that's a brave lad that Bill Harker said the devil. Ah, come off, said the sailors. Them reefers, they haven't got souls to be saved. It was that that set the devil thinking. By and by they came up with the horn, and if it had blown off the plate, it now blew off the roof. Talk about wind and weather. They got both of them for sure aboard the coronel, and it blew all the sails off her and she rolled all her masts out, and the seas made a breach of her bulwarks, and the ice knocked a hole in her bows. So watch and watch, they pumped the old coronal, and the leak gained steadily. And there they were, hove, to under a weather cloth, five and a half degrees to the south of anything. And while they were like this, just about giving up hope, the old man sent the watch below, and told them they could start prayers. So the devil crept onto the top of the half-deck and looked through the scuttle to see what the reefers were doing and what kind of prayers Bill Harker was putting up. And he saw them all sitting around the table, under the lamp, with Bill Harker at the head. And each of them had a hand of cards and a length of knotted rope yarn and they were playing able wackets. Each man in turn put down a card and swore a new blasphemy and if his swear didn't come as he played the card, then all the others hit him with their teasers. But they never once had a chance to hit Bill Harker. I think they were right about his soul, said the devil, and he sighed like he was sad. Shortly after, the coronel went down and all hands drowned in her, saving only Bill and the devil. They came up out of the smothering green seas and saw the stars blinking in the sky and heard the wind howling like a pack of dogs. They managed to get aboard the coronel's henhouse, which had come adrift and floated. The fowls were all drowned inside, so they lived on drowned hens, As for drink, they had to do without, for there was none. When they got thirsty, they splashed their faces with salt water, but they were so cold they didn't feel thirsty very bad. They drifted, three days and three nights, till their skins were all cracked and salt-caked, and all the devil thought of was whether Bill Harker had a soul and Bill kept telling the devil what a thundering big feed they would have as soon as they fetched a port, and how good a rum hot would be with a lump of sugar and a bit of lemon peel. And, at last, the old henhouse came bump on to Tierra del Fuego, and there were some natives cooking rabbits, so the devil and Bill made a raid of the whole Jing bang and ate till they were tired. Then they had a drink out of a brook, and a warm by the fire, and a pleasant sleep. Now, said the devil, I will see if he's got a soul. I'll see if he gives thanks. So after an hour or two, Bill took a turn up and down and came to the devil. It's mighty dull in this forgotten continent, he said. Have you got a halfpenny? Eh, no, said the devil. "'What enjoy do you want with a halfpenny? Oh, "'I might have played you pitch and toss,' said Bill. "'It was better fun in the hen-coop than here.' "'I give you up,' said the devil. "'You've no more soul than the inner part of an empty barrel.' "'And with that, the devil vanished in a flame of sulphur. "'Bill stretched himself.' and put another shrub in the fire. He picked up a few round shells and began a game of knuckle bones.
0: Rowan Dareth and Byron Wexholm read The Bosch's Gorilla by William Patterson White, first published in 1910. Voyage Eastward, from the 1895 edition of The Surprising Adventures of Baron Munchausen, by Rudolf Eric Resp, read by His Royal Highness, Emperor Ezra Crumb II. Davy Jones' Gift, by John Maysfield, read by Victor First Mornington, first published in Country Life, November 11th, 1905. Music, Ibn al-Nur, and Narcissus, by Kevin MacLeod. The sounds used in tonight's podcast were collected on location by Masevno Tank, including the choir of St. Joseph's Roman Catholic Church, which is entering the cathedral now. Tales from New Babbage is produced for Radio Real by the citizens of the city-state of New Babbage. This show is licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 attribution, non-commercial, share alike. Keep building, New Babbage.